So far, as we've looked at John's Gospel, we've seen Jesus interacting with quite a few different people. And there have been different kinds of people. In chapter 3, he met Nicodemus, a man who was pretty sure of himself. But Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again. In chapter 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman, a lady who was an outcast, even among her own people, it seems. But Jesus completely ignored that, and he offered her living water. Then last time at the end of chapter 4, we met, uh, we saw Jesus meeting a royal official whose son was close to death. That man wanted a display of power from Jesus. But he was challenged to simply believe Jesus' promise and go on his way, trusting Jesus to keep his promise. Different kinds of people, different situations, and with each person and each situation, Jesus knows what's appropriate. He knows what's needed. And this morning, as we move into John chapter 5, we find Jesus approaching a man with a chronic long-term illness. And we find Jesus asking this man what seems to be a silly question. Do you want to get well? It seems like a silly question. But it turns out to be exactly the right question. Because in this passage, we see people choosing not to get well. And we'll think about how people today are making that same choice not to get well. In fact, even some of us here this morning might be making that choice. We're going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 1. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1068. In the larger print Bibles, 1654. John chapter 5, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk at once. The man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. 
Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is God's word. And it shows us, first of all, Jesus has the power to make us perfectly well. And then in response to that, we see two ways of choosing not to get well. First, Jesus has the power to make us perfectly well. The end of chapter 4 took place in the north of Israel, in Jesus' home region of Galilee. And we saw the people of Galilee, like many others, are addicted to displays of power. That's what they crave from Jesus. They want a steady diet of signs and wonders. Unless Jesus keeps serving up miracles, their belief in him will wither away. And we saw how Jesus wanted to wean them away from that kind of superficial belief in him. He wanted them to develop the kind of belief that's willing to take him at his word and trust his promises. Even when there are no spectacular miracles going on. That's what we saw in Galilee. But now... The beginning of chapter 5 tells us Jesus chooses to go back to Jerusalem. And he goes back at the time of one of the Jewish festivals. So as he did in chapter 2, Jesus goes to the center of Jewish life, the heart of Jewish religion. And he goes there when the place is even more busy than normal. It's heaving with people who've come there specially for this festival. And while he's there, Jesus goes to this pool called Bethesda. And John gives us a very specific detail about it in verse 2. It is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So five rows of pillars. Quite distinctive. And this pool has been excavated by archaeologists. Some of you I know have visited Jerusalem. Maybe you've been to the pool of Bethesda. Which is just a reminder that we are dealing here with real places and real people. And as he goes to this pool, Jesus shows yet again his concern for real people and all their varied and messy situations. Verse 3 tells us the pool attracted a great number of disabled people, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. At the end of chapter 4, we heard about a young man who had a very urgent need. He was close to death with fever. But these people are different. Their problems are long-term. 
Why do they gather at this particular pool? Well, John doesn't tell us directly, although the man Jesus talks to will hint at it a bit further on. And much later, one of the scribes who copied John's gospel by hand added a little note to explain why the pool was so attractive to these sick people. You can see that at the bottom of the page in the NIV, if you're using the NIV, footnote B there at the bottom of the page, says, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, it's important to be very clear that is a description of what people believed about the pool. It was that belief which drew them to the pool. Neither John nor Jesus say anything about whether it actually happened that way or if it did ever happen, how often it happened. The significant point is people came to this pool hoping to be healed. And Jesus focuses his attention on one of those people, a particularly tough case. Look in verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Verse 6 says Jesus learned the man had been in that condition for a long time. A more helpful translation would be Jesus knew he'd been like that a long time. Jesus didn't have to ask. He knew. Just like he knew the background of the Samaritan lady at the well. Just like he knows every individual. Jesus knows this particular man at the pool. He knows the 38 years of misery this man has gone through. And since Jesus knows that, his question to the man in verse 6 seems to be a very silly question. Do you want to get well? Surely the answer is obvious, we would think. If the man didn't want to get well, why would he be lying by the pool? It seems obvious. But what we're going to see is Jesus actually is challenging this man. We might rephrase Jesus' question like this. How well do you want to get? Sure, you don't want to be paralyzed, but I can give you much more than strong legs. I can make you perfectly well. So, how well do you want to get? That's what Jesus is asking. But the man doesn't seem to realize the offer Jesus is making. He just gets a bit prickly about the question, as if Jesus is doubting his effort and his commitment to getting well. Look in verse 7, how he responds to Jesus. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Jesus has just offered to help. But this man isn't looking to Jesus for help. He's looking to the waters in the pool, which have done nothing for him in 38 years. And at that point, Jesus simply makes him well. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. 
At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. This is supernatural power. It's new creation power. Legs that haven't had strength in them for 38 years are made new with just a word from Jesus. Those wasted muscles and tendons are suddenly able to do what they couldn't do just a minute before. And as chapter 5 progresses, Jesus, John, in fact, is going to show us Jesus' new creation power goes way, way beyond making um, weak legs strong. The same words that are translated get up here in verse 8 will be used later in the chapter referring to Jesus' power to raise men and women from spiritual death to spiritual life. And chapter 5 will also tell us the same voice that can call strength into paralyzed limbs, that same voice will one day call dead bodies from the grave to enjoy new resurrection life. We'll get to that next week. But for now, all we need to realize is, yes, Jesus has made this man well, and what he has done is only a little foretaste of how well he could make this man. Strong legs are just the tip of the iceberg here. Jesus could make this man perfectly, eternally well. But this is where Jesus' earlier question becomes relevant. How well does this man want to get? And how well do the Jewish leaders want to get? They immediately become aware of this miraculous healing. Will they look to Jesus for the perfect wellness he can give? We might hope so. But the second part of this passage shows us two ways of choosing not to get well. The response of the man and the response of the Jewish leaders are woven together here, but it's worth untangling them and looking at them separately. To begin with, let's notice how the man responds. He responds with indifference toward Jesus. To be indifferent is to be uninterested, unconcerned. And look how that comes across here. The end of verse 9 tells us Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, the day that was set apart for rest. And as this newly healed man strides away from the pool, testing out these new legs, doing something he hasn't done in 38 years, the Jewish leaders pounce on him in verse 10. They said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. In verse 11, when the leaders challenge him about carrying his mat, the man blames Jesus. The man who made me well told me to do it. And we'll think a bit later why the leaders thought carrying a mat was so bad. 
for now. Just notice how quick the man is to pass the blame for it. But he can't even give them Jesus' name because he hasn't bothered to ask Jesus' name. Now, yes, verse 13 says that after the healing, Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. But this man has just acquired supernaturally renewed power-packed legs. Are we really supposed to think he couldn't have caught up to Jesus if he wanted to? The implication is he wasn't interested enough to get Jesus' name. The guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. Now suddenly he's not. And yet his interest isn't tickled enough to find out who healed him. Doesn't that strike you as a bit weird? A bit dull and dozy? And it gets worse because later Jesus finds him again And he gives him this pretty startling challenge in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What does Jesus mean? Well, he's drawing a connection between the man's illness and his sin. Jesus is certainly not saying that every illness is the direct result of sin. Now, of course, in a general sense, illness only exists because of sin. The world is broken by sin, and illness is part of that brokenness. But the Bible does not teach that every illness in someone's life can be traced back to some sin they've been involved in. In fact, Jesus will make that exact point further on in John's gospel. If you want to look into that later, read the beginning of John chapter 9 and see what Jesus says there. According to the Bible, not every illness can be traced back to a specific sin. But sometimes an illness in someone's life has come about because of a specific sin. Sometimes, sin brings fairly immediate consequences. One of those consequences can be physical illness. And that is what has happened to this man. Now, you and I don't have the insight to know those kind of things. But Jesus does have the insight to know. And he says to this man, I've just healed your surface issue. I've fixed your legs. But you have a much more serious problem. Your sin. And if your sin isn't dealt with, you'll end up with something far, far worse than paralysis. Jesus is talking about the final judgment. We know that because that's what he's going to deal with in the next part of chapter 5, which we'll come to next week. So here, Jesus is challenging this man, you've had a hard time for 38 years, but failing to deal with your sin will lead you to an eternity of condemnation. 
The first words Jesus said to this man were, do you want to get well? And now Jesus challenges him in the most direct way. How well do you want to get? Are you happy with just strong legs? Is that as well as you want to get? Or do you want eternal healing? Do you want to leave behind your sin and the terrible consequences of your sin? It's a big, big moment in this man's life. Jesus is right there. It's a wonderful opportunity for this man to receive ultimate healing from Jesus. But verse 15 tells us how he responds. He doesn't ask Jesus for help. He doesn't even ask for more information about what Jesus has just said. Instead, he turns his back on Jesus and trots away to the Jewish leaders, confirming what actually they already know. The man who healed him was Jesus. No conversation with Jesus. No questions for Jesus. Just indifference. He doesn't care to know more. He doesn't care to investigate. No doubt he's really pleased about his new strong legs. But when it comes to Jesus, the man is uninterested and unconcerned. And he's just like so many people today. Maybe even some of us here this morning. A writer called Thomas Morris puts his finger on what we're talking about here. He says this. A teacher once asked a very bright but unmotivated student, what's the difference between ignorance and indifference? The student replied, I don't know and I don't care. And that's exactly right. An ignorant person does not know an indifferent person does not care. And what we need to realize is the Bible doesn't condemn people for not knowing. It condemns them for not caring. God has provided for those who don't know him. He's given us his written word. His son Jesus came as the word become flesh. God has made sure those who don't know him can know him. But God will not excuse those who don't care to know him. Are you indifferent to Jesus? Are you uninterested and unconcerned about sin? About judgment day? And the eternity that comes after? If you are, you're being foolish. Thomas Morris has this to say about the foolishness of indifference. To be utterly lost in the woods is unfortunate. To be absolutely unconcerned about it is unreasonable. Yet so many people who spend weeks mastering a new video game, months learning a tennis serve, or years perfecting a golf swing will not invest a few days or even a matter of hours 
in the effort to understand better some of the deeper questions about life. And what could be deeper than the question Jesus has raised here in our passage in verse 14? What's worse than 38 years of misery? The answer, an eternity of misery. Wouldn't it be reasonable to be interested in that issue? Wouldn't it be reasonable to be interested in what more Jesus might have to say about it? But the man doesn't care. Maybe you don't care either. But can you see how unreasonable that is? To be careless about the questions of sin, judgment, and eternity. To shrug our shoulders or look the other way when we read about Jesus. The things he did, the claims he makes about himself. His power to deal with those big issues. Are the things you do give attention to really more important than these things? Are you wise to invest so much time in work, hobbies, and entertainment while investing no time in the deeper questions of life? And how Jesus claims to be the answer to those deeper questions. How many people today obsess about their physical health? Researching it online. But they refuse to give even a thought to their eternal health. you and I listen to this passage, we will not make the mistake of being indifferent toward Jesus. But in this passage, that's not the only way of choosing not to get well. The Jewish leaders could not be accused of being indifferent. They show hostility toward Jesus. We've already noticed when they hear about the healing, they pounce on the man who was healed. Because he was walking around carrying his mat, which was what Jesus had told him to do. Why on earth did they get so worked up about that? Well, the Old Testament law given by God commanded people not to work on the Sabbath, which is our Saturday. And the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment says this, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days... You shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. Now clearly, work there means your ordinary work, your day job. You've got six days for that. Take a rest from it on the seventh day in order to worship God. But in our passage, clearly this newly healed man does not carry mats around for a living. He's not been able to carry anything around for 38 years. This is not his day job. He's carrying his mat because he's suddenly able to walk. It has nothing at all to do with the fourth commandment. 
So why do the Jewish leaders say the law forbids him to carry his mat? The answer is the Jewish leaders had added their own rules and traditions onto the fourth commandment. They had supplemented God's simple command with a whole load of complicated requirements. When it came to mats, they said you could carry a mat if there was someone lying on it, but carrying a mat that didn't have someone lying on it was forbidden. Now, you and I don't need to know the reasoning behind those regulations. What we do need to grasp is that this man has not broken God's law. He has broken the Jewish traditions that were added on to God's law. And because Jesus told the man to carry his mat, the Jewish leaders considered Jesus to be guilty. It's worth stepping back for a moment and thinking about this. These leaders have just seen a man miraculously healed. Probably a man they were aware of who'd been lying there for all those years. They'd probably seen him before. Now he's walking around with a spring in his step. It's an astonishing thing. They've almost certainly never seen something like this before. But the only thing they get excited about is that one of their obscure rules has been broken. Why is it such a big issue for them? Well, their rules and traditions were a way of preserving their culture. They were surrounded by all sorts of pagan lifestyles and outlooks. The Romans who occupied Israel, they represented a whole other culture and way of life. And the Jewish leaders were determined to preserve their culture and their way of life. One way to do that was to keep a tight grip on enforcing their traditions. And to a degree, that is perfectly understandable. But what has happened is their obsession with preserving their way of life has become all-consuming to the point where when this miracle takes place at the pool, instead of considering what kind of supernatural power is breaking into their world, and who Jesus might be, instead of being interested in that, they go ape because this guy walked around with his mat under his arm. Talk about missing the point. And yet, as ridiculous as it seems, this kind of reaction to Jesus is very, very common. We don't like our comfortable little world to be turned upside down. We like things the way we like them. We want things to stay the way they are. And when Jesus arrives with power from another world, when he talks about sin and judgment, when he says we need to be born again, when he talks about our private life like it's his business, we can get hostile. Many people prefer to get angry about Jesus than to consider whether he really can give us eternal life. 
Many people prefer to fight for life as they know it than listen to Jesus' offer of life beyond our wildest dreams. Have you ever wondered why some atheists are so angry and hostile about God in general and Jesus in particular? They say they don't believe in him. But that's not a reason to get angry. They probably don't believe in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus either. But they don't get angry about those two. It's hard to get angry about someone you truly don't believe in. We get angry when we feel threatened by someone. And I would suggest that's something that many, many modern-day atheists have in common with these Jewish religious leaders in John 5. Both of the groups of people realize that believing in Jesus' words would turn their world upside down. It would rewrite their whole understanding of life. It would take away the comfortable ideas they cling to. And so instead of considering Jesus' words and seriously examining the evidence for his life, death, and resurrection, instead of that, they just get hostile towards him. And the sad part is, hostility toward Jesus is another way of choosing not to get well. It causes men and women to miss out on the new life Jesus can give. And of all the things that provoke a hostile reaction towards Jesus, the most provocative of all is Jesus' claim to be God. A Muslim, for example, if you talk to a Muslim, they will be prepared to go so far with you when it comes to Jesus. After all, the Quran does say Jesus was a prophet. But when it comes to Jesus' claim to be God, that is where things usually get hostile. Because that's what turns Islamic thinking and belief right upside down. And likewise here in Jerusalem with these Jewish leaders. Verse 16 says they begin to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have responded to them by saying, I didn't break God's law regarding the Sabbath. I broke your tradition. So I don't deserve your persecution. Jesus could have said that. And it would have been a good answer. But Jesus takes a very different approach. He says... There's only one person God's Sabbath law doesn't apply to. That person is God himself. And so, the Sabbath law doesn't apply to me. Look at that in verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day. Now, the Jews agreed that God works on the Sabbath. Otherwise, they realized the universe would collapse. They understood that God's, God sustains the universe moment by moment. It is his constant work that keeps it in running order. 
So they realized the Sabbath commandment did not apply to God. And here, Jesus takes that good insight and he says, that's the reason the Sabbath commandment doesn't apply to me. First in verse 17, he calls God my Father. That by itself is an outstanding claim. But he goes on to add, my Father is always at his work and I too am working. That Sabbath exemption that applies only to God applies to me. His work is my work. And the Jews understood very, very well what Jesus is claiming for himself there. In verse 18, John summarizes their reaction. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood Jesus perfectly. And they hated him for it. Verse 18 says, For this reason they tried all the more to kill him. Why? Because the only other alternative is to accept him for who he is and have their world turned upside down. To accept Jesus' claims about himself would take them out of their comfortable traditions about when, and when you can and can't carry a straw mat, for example. Accepting Jesus for who he is would bring them into a whole new world of cleansing from sin, new creation power, and eternal hope. A life of being made perfectly well. But these leaders prefer the familiar. They prefer what they know, what they're comfortable with. It's not like there's no evidence to back up Jesus' claims about himself. He's just healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. That's pretty significant. And today, we have even more significant evidence that backs up Jesus' claims about himself. We have eyewitness accounts of his resurrection from the dead. Yet even so... Many people today make the same choice these Jewish leaders made. Instead of bowing before Jesus and acknowledging that he is God, they choose to become angry with him. They choose not to get well. So what about you? Are you willing to follow the evidence and accept Jesus as God? Receiving the new creation life he gives? Or will you choose what you're comfortable with instead? Will you carry on being indifferent to Jesus or become hostile towards him? In a few moments, we have the opportunity to celebrate the reality of Jesus' new creation power. We'll do that as we share the bread and wine together, symbolizing his broken body and his shed blood, that terrible sacrifice that makes us well when we come to him for healing. And to lead us into that, 
We're going to respond to God's word as we sing, In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is the one and the only one who can make me perfectly well. Let's stand to sing this. <laughs>